All right, guys. Welcome back to Bitcoin Magazine Live's 41st show. This is pretty exciting. I'm here with Q uh, of Bitcoin Magazine, our, our, our normal host. And we're talking to Jack Mollish today, which is super exciting. Jack should be here shortly. We're also going to do, you know, a Twitter spaces. But if you're on YouTube, you're in the right place or Twitch, because this is where we give away the free Bitcoin. So if you don't have the Earned Carrot app installed, go ahead and uh, install the Earned Carrot app. There should be a QR code on screen. We're going to drop some free sats below. It's first come, first serve on the sats, guys. First one to enter the code into the Earned Carrot app wins. Uh, and as we wait for that, oh, looks like Jack just arrived. I do want to start, Jack, by saying first, thank you. Thank you for coming here. Thank you for the work that you do for Bitcoin. I mean, you have pushed the ball forward in this country, in El Salvador, and you continue to do it, man. Um, I want to go way, way back with you. Can you talk to us a little bit about that orange pilling? Who did it? How was your initial gut reaction to Bitcoin? Were you, uh, did you dive head first? I believe in this, or were there some things you were skeptical about? Talking about my personal story of being yes. filled. Oh man, um, all credit goes to my father. For those who don't know, um, my grandfather was former chairman of the Chicago Board of Trade, who some people associate with also my story. Unfortunately, he passed away before I was in middle school. So he was not alive. Well, some people think he's Satoshi or whatever. That's not true. But um, I, I, Grew up under a dad that ran a, a Chicago's futures brokerage. He was the son of the chairman of Chicago Board of Trade, uh, futures uh, trader, currency pit trader. And these Chicago guys got it right away. There was never a doubt in their mind. Um, Chicago also has this really interesting culture that is counter to New York. Uh, my grandfather ran the Hunt brothers out of cornering the silver market and manipulating the silver market in the Chicago exchanges and the Hunt brothers ended up manipulating the silver market in the New York exchanges. And that just kind of goes to show New York's very flashy, very money-driven, manipulative markets, kind of shysty, shady, bald-headed, veiny motherfuckers. And Chicago guys are salt of the earth, true to their, true to their, uh, just to their principles, their morals, they hold market integrity, and they're very honest about that. And so Bitcoin was extremely appealing for all of those reasons. It was kind of the currency of the people. They understood it. Chicago was a real market that founded agriculture uh, derivatives and that risk transfer away from corn farmers. So not only did they get a currency that was global, uh, a currency and a, and a money that was for the people, but also one, uh, they understood Bitcoin mining right away, right? Like they understood no one knows the corn farmer better than the Chicago pits. And so for all of those reasons, by the time I was dropping out of college, my dad was already accumulating. He was already stacking sats and he was already orange pilling everyone in the house. And so, of course, I went through the, you know, the same story everyone does is almost everyone, the second time you hear about Bitcoin is the time that you really get it. The first time is kind of like your initiation hazing phase of sorts. And you always have horror stories of if I would have understood it the first time. So I went through the same thing, man. Um, I remember coming home from coding boot camp and uh, Andreas Antonopoulos was in my living room. And that was one of the first days that I really got it. So I'll stop ranting there, but very Chicago driven, very thankful for my dad. And for all of those that think I'm smart, um, it's not true. I just have a really, really kick-ass father. And that's the truth. That's awesome. Shout out to Mr. Mahlers. Thank, thank you for leading your son to the water. And he ended up fishing and helping everyone else out along the way. 
a couple of things I kind of want to touch on that you you share. Like I I myself went to a coding boot camp, and I think that those things kind of get a a bad rap. But you are you are very quickly now the poster child for the benefits of coding boot camp. I'd love to like what inspired you down that path. Was it Bitcoin that sent you down that rabbit hole? Was it life that sent you down that rabbit hole? Because that that's not a normal uh, option for everyone to take. Yeah, all these answers, I hope they're what you're looking for, but they're very particular to me, if I'm being honest. I So I grew up, I have uh, two state chess championships. I thought I wanted to be a professional chess player. Uh, and so I took some scholarship money to go to St. John's University at the time, and still arguably to this day, New York is the chess capital of the world. And so I went and I, uh, <laughs> every day of college, I would skip class. I was the worst student of all time didn't give a fuck and and violently made that apparent and I would skip class ditch it and I would take the train into New York and I'd play chess with the homeless in the parks every single day and got to the point where I realized there was no such thing as a professional chess player all professional chess players unless you're like the world champion have side gigs of teaching and such it's just not very lucrative Um, the opportunity wasn't there and it's not a very ambitious career there wasn't a lot of impact on the world I can make and so I came home 30 days into Uh, enrolling into college. So I didn't even get a college credit, wasted a ton of my dad's money. When I got home, my dad had a buddy who was an engineer at Apple and we would play chess and he was a smart guy, really good engineer and thought he was a good chess player. And every time he'd come over, I'd beat him blindfold. This is a true story. And so my dad was really confused. He was like, dude, like, I'm trying to be a good parent here, man. Like, what the fuck is your problem? Like, your ACT scores are dog shit. You don't pay attention in class. You ditch. You're always in the dean's office. But then you're beating Apple engineers in chess blindfold. Like, I'm trying to understand, like, are you smart? Are you ambitious? Are you driven? Or are you, like, an idiot? And, like, do you need to go to trade school? And my dad, the friend eventually was like, this kid needs to learn how to code. Like, it's not. School's not. Like, he's not the problem. School's the problem. Um, I think if Jack knew how to code, a lot of the things that he loves about chess and that he's good at with chess would maybe transpire. And so that is the dead honest truth of why I enrolled. I had no idea what Bitcoin was at the time. Uh, and it was all about just picking up a skill that overlapped with one of my passions and joys and ability to create. I think, you know, if you ask chess players what chess is about, if you Google it, it's like, well, this is the rules and it's within the 64 squares. Um, if you ask, you know, if you walk into a, a New York chess club, what's chess about? It's the art of really seeing yourself forward. Um, and yes, that includes calculations, that includes foresight, that includes vision, that includes um, ability to manage risk. And, you know, every chess move implies bad things and good things on the board and your ability to manage the pros and cons and, you know, the best outcome for yourself given a single single move. But it really is the art of moving forward. And in engineering, it is that as well. And building tooling for the world digitally, it is that as well. So it ended up working out, but it was more luck than happy chance. And uh, yeah, that's the true story. <laughs> Jack, love it. Thanks for uh, sharing that with us. Uh, I'll have to catch you on chess.com sometime. I'm sure you still love to play. So I had a quick lifestyle question before we jump into some of the Bitcoin stuff. I, I was just wondering, has Bitcoin influenced any of your daily routines, how you value your time. Like, give me, give me a life, a day in the life of Jack Mahler's, if you would. Yeah, I think Bitcoin certainly, but also um, engineering as well. I'm um, writing software. Uh, there's a lot of overlaps in the two, in that uh, simplicity is the challenge. There is no such thing as being a master of everything. 
um, and being master of one is difficult within itself. And so the difficult thing is not to try and accomplish a hundred things. It's out of a hundred things that you have an opportunity of attacking and accomplishing. What is the one that's most valuable and important and your ability to delegate and dismiss the other 99 is actually what is required to live a high quality of life or build a high quality solution or do a high performance job. And so that implies, you know, time preference uh, changes that implies difference of scope that implies. So a uh, day in the life for me, I meditate a solid amount, go on a lot of walks. I enjoy thinking. I enjoy conversing with people that challenge my ways of thinking, but uh, I'm always optimizing for a simpler life. Uh, and then I also have this thesis that in the same way that you can't just wake up and win a marathon, you also can't just wake up and change the world. Um, there's a sense of being in shape to accomplish these things. And in the way that you would train yourself to run a marathon, I actively think of training myself to have a really outsized impact on society, not claiming that I will and that you know I am or anything like that, but I always aim to hope and carry that ambition that um, I could. And so my diet is extremely, extremely strict. Sometimes, you know, I, I've actually been changing this a bit, but I used to run between five to 10 miles a day. Um, my sleeping habits are very scientific. I just optimize every second of my, you know, alive time, being alive, being awake, being present is optimized around making sure that I'm quote unquote in shape with an ability to make an outsized impact on society that I think will be beneficial. So I don't really take any time off. It is important that not everything is Bitcoin focused, right? And that there is time for other things, but all of my life really is optimized around building uh, tooling on top of Bitcoin and improving the world through the world's open monetary network. Uh, fortunate that I'm 27 and that, you know, there's a lot of, uh, I don't have a family yet, right? Like I don't have a lot of life responsibilities that many others have, but it's a very scientific uh, day in the life for me. It's all about just making progress. I love that. I mean, it, it feeds into that old saying of you have to have the mentality of a millionaire before you are actually a millionaire. I want to ask this truly because our producer, Chris, and I were having this conversation last night, but when you talk about scientific sleep, are you like eight hours before midnight? How many hours are you getting? Like, talk to us a little bit about that. Cause I, I think sleep gets overlooked in our industry, in our society. Yeah. I, I, to, at this very current stance right now, I'm actually flirting with a few different things. I've actually gone as far as trying to sleep in four hour increments that are spread out three times within a given 24 hour time frame. So there's been times where I've woken up at like two in the morning because my four hours is up and then I'll work from like two to noon and then sleep from noon to four. And then where, and, and that there's science behind that. And I also think, you know, like I, Jack Dorsey has been vocal about this is that science is one of these interesting things that we frankly know close to nothing about how our bodies work. And a lot of science in relation to health has been a result of trial and error and, you know, calculable trial and error and, you know, not reckless trial and error, but nonetheless. And so I've tried that where I'm at now. Um, an interesting thing I found tremendously helpful is the act of going to bed. I divide into two parts. It's the notion of entering the bedroom, which is an attempt to sleep. And then there's actually shutting your eyes and sleeping. When I begin my attempt to sleep, actually like no phone, no devices. I give myself 30 minutes of just 
like turning off, so to speak. Think of it like the Xbox One. It took a second for it to dial itself all the way off. And so I think that that's really important to shut off any stimulus to my body and to my psyche before I enter a realm of sleep. So that's been really helpful. I do a lot of red light exercises. So I have a red light that gets certain exposure to the back of my head (laughs) um, at certain times of the day to optimize for performance. Like when I eat protein versus carbohydrates, uh, I do uh, carbohydrates a lot in the morning or before before things like this. And towards the later night is when I will eat things like steak. Um, So that all is informant in like, how I sleep, when I meditate and uh, stuff like that. But again, it's all about, um, I think, optimizing and putting myself in a position to be achieve what we want to achieve, which is, you know, pushing Bitcoin forward and, and by that making the world a better place. So can't do that hungover kids. (laughs) No, I love that. I mean, I, I, myself, I'm a big meditator. Jay Shetty and Thich Nhat Hanh are probably two of my favorite Buddhist teachers that I've had the opportunity to read a ton. I won't bore our viewers or listeners with that. I will probably steal you at the conference to, to pick your ear about some meditation stuff, but to bring it back to Bitcoin, specifically the lightning network, the work you've done with strike has changed the way exchanges are operating. And now everyone is responding to your work. Talk to us a little bit about the opportunity that you saw in in Lightning and how you took advantage of it. Yeah, it's funny enough, after this, I actually headed to the airport to to talk about this with 60 Minutes for the, everyone knows they're doing a piece on El Salvador and such. And uh, it was funny because in some of the uh, leading up to the interview questioning, they're like, why did El Salvador do this? Is the government has some political agenda or is it because your grandfather was part of the Chicago exchanges? And I think the answer is that, you know, like it's just the most practical thing they could have done and that anyone could do. Bitcoin and Lightning is just very obviously a superior payments experience. Like it just is. It would be the equivalent of me questioning like why the fuck is Google using the World Wide Web as their preferred way to distribute communications to the world? Why don't they just launch a newspaper? It's like, I don't know. I think that the global communication standard for the world that we know of as the internet is just a superior communication standard than like the standard of publishing newspapers. (laughs) And so what I ended up like initially with Strike which was formerly Zap, at the time was trying me and trying to aid and help with the block size war. It was about trying to humanize the Lightning Network and show that this tool could be scaled in layers and it was the correct approach and that Lightning was not vaporware and it was real. A lot of the things that you may laugh at today on Twitter were real debate topics back in the day. And I was trying to humanize the thing and not let people read white papers and just allow people to feel it and experience it and click buttons and see how instantaneous and cheap it was. But then what you begin to realize is when I'm coding and testing with people, I'm sending payments to a guy in the UK instantly and for free as we're testing shit back and forth. All of a sudden you're realizing you're doing, and someone is selling me a virtual coffee and there's no concept of MDR. There is no interchange. There is no settlement delays. And what what I began to realize is I'm doing shit that Visa can't do. I'm doing shit that Western Union can't do. I'm doing shit that PayPal can't do. And it's an open network. And so every day I would wake up and there'd be more fucking people on this thing than there were yesterday. And then more than than the day before. And then more and then more and then more. And as the more people that came on, the services that I was building were getting more valuable in the same way that like 
the University of Illinois web engineering class and kids are building websites is making Google a more valuable company. Google's not authoring that, not paying the University of Illinois to do that. They're just on an open network, which is the internet. It comes with these open network effects and economies of scale. And I, it was then I just realized this is a premier premium payments experience for the world. And it actually is going to dematerialize all of these independent, it's going to dematerialize radio and news in the, in the same way that the internet dematerialized radio, newspaper publishing, pigeon messaging, telecom onto one standard. I think Visa, Western Union, remitting money, issuing banks, acquiring banks, all of that's going to get dematerialized onto one premium standard. The Lightning Network can do Western Union's job, Visa's job, JP Morgan Chase on the issuing side, Citibank on the acquiring side. It could do their jobs all better, all in one. And then the result of that is we'll have one global open standard for the world to compete for the experience. And then that's when I went through this mental exercise. I was like, shit why is no one using this? It has to be for the experience, right? If you think back, sorry, this answer is getting long-winded, but if you think back to the internet, like people in these early relay chats on the web, the first iterations of the web, these were hacker tech enthusiasts. They were sending messages to each other across the world. And I'm sure people thought it was cool and demos were interesting, but no one liked that experience or thought that experience rivaled the newspaper. Little did they know that those bytes of data being sent from the US to Europe instantly, which is a new form of communication, would result in Google, which is indexing the world's information and communications uh, network, or Facebook, which is a new way of social networking, or Instagram is a particular experience on top of the communication standard of the internet that is about sharing photos that are memories. Snapchat is about sharing photos in real time. All of a sudden you had, but no one at the time could envision that the early relay chats, those bytes of data, they could be messages, they could be photos, and now they could be money. Bitcoin lives within the communications channel that is the internet. It could be satellite, it could be radio, but no one in the early days of the web thought that we would dematerialize money on top of these, this communications channel, right? It's just, a, it's a premium communication channel. No one could see, right? And I think the same thing about Bitcoin and Lightning is that like, who knows what an open global uh, monetary standard that's premier and premium is going to result in. And I sat to myself and I was like, what is an interesting experience on top of it? What's an attractive experience? And I went through my own checklist. Like I don't use lightning enough because I don't like spending my own Bitcoin. I don't use lightning because I don't like having to report it to the IRS. I don't use lightning because of the volatility of Bitcoin. I don't use lightning. Would I pay one penny to read a New York Times article? Yeah, if the headline was interesting. But would I, would I load up a lightning node and sell my Bitcoin for it? No, fuck no, I don't give a fuck. But if I could attach my Chase bank account and software took dollars out of Chase for me and then used a better monetary network to give the money on the other side of the world or to a coffee barista or to a publisher, yeah, I'd do it. And then that was the first version of Stripe was effectively you know, taking what Cash App is or what Memo is and uh, plugging Bitcoin and Lightning into it instead of like a closed monetary network. And so that's kind of like my evolution of thought summarized. My fellow clubs, the Bitcoin conference is back. Bitcoin 2022, April 6th through the 9th is the ultimate pilgrimage for the Bitcoin ecosystem. The Bitcoin conference is the biggest event in all of Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies. We're leveling up and making this bigger and better than ever. I'm talking straight to the moon with the four day long festival in the heart of Miami at the Miami Beach Convention Center. This has something for everyone 
Whether you're a high-powered Bitcoin entrepreneur, a core developer, or a Bitcoin newbie, Bitcoin 2022 is the ultimate place for you to be with your people and celebrate and learn about the Bitcoin culture. So make sure to go to b.tc forward slash conference to lock in your official tickets and use promo code Satoshi for 10% off. Want more off? Pay in Bitcoin and you'll receive $100 off general admission and $1,000 off whale pass. Those are stackable. So go to b.tc forward slash conference and attend the best conference in Bitcoin history. And so if we take that like to today, I mean, Strike has become, for me, it's the most seamless exchange to get Bitcoin on. I mean, I'm, I'm paid through Strike. I buy my Bitcoin and Strike. So my question to you is, uh, what, you know, what are the goals in your eyes now? Are we looking at expanding into Canada? Is there exciting software developments that you wanted to share today? Um, what, what, what are you thinking about? So the company Strike itself, uh, we optimize around the best financial experience and the best financial brand. And so the reason we let you buy Bitcoin for free, the reason that we let you get paid in Bitcoin, the way I like to think about it is my daughter. So I'm 27 years old. So let's say my son or daughter by the year 2050 will be looking to bank. Where are they going to bank? Are they going to bank at the JP Morgan Chase down the street? No, I don't think anyone thinks they will. Right? I, I think that's a kind of a universal, even JP Morgan Chase is probably thinking about ways um, to, to bank them and it's, it's not their existing products and experience. Okay, fair enough. Now, here's where I think it's interesting. Are they going to bank at Chime? Because in 2017, Chime was the first to come up with two-day early direct deposit. Guys, the year's 2050. My daughter's not going to give a fuck what Chime did in 2017. And that's a very easy feature to duplicate. Now, Cash App lets you do it. Now, Venmo lets you do it, right? So where is my daughter going to bank? I think my daughter is going to bank on the best experience and the best brand on top of the world's open monetary network. And it's not going to be like by the year 2050, everyone's going to be selling Bitcoin for free or whatever it costs for them to offer the service, right? Like the, the race to the bottom will be complete, everything. And so I think the real competition and value capture is in the experience in the, in the global brand on top of the world's open monetary network. And we, I'm just taking lessons that we already learned from the internet. And so that's how we optimize every decision we make. And so when people think like, why are you offering buy Bitcoin? Why are you, I'm building the best financial experience ever. Like I want, here's what I want. I want my non-working capital, capital that I intend to save, that is the future home I own, future tuition for my kids to get into Harvard, capital that I want to persist through time. I want to hold in Bitcoin. I want the ability to acquire that Bitcoin to be as cheap as possible, which is why we do it for free. And I want a variety of ways to do it. I want to get paid in it. I want to DCA it in the hour. I want to DCA it in the month. I want to be able to buy it spot when it dips. And that's why those things exist. Now, the capital that I need to spend to live the quality of life that I deem necessary for myself. So the money that I will not own by the end of the month, that I get paid every month and that leaves my ownership and into someone else's in exchange for goods and services like groceries or my phone bill or my rent. Um, I think it should be interoperable over the Lightning Network. So I think I should have dollars or whatever cash collateral I'm comfortable with interoperable and spendable over lightning. And then I should be able to acquire Bitcoin as cheap as possible. And then even I should have like a debit card that allows me to use my Bitcoin that I'm stashing as collateral and I can loan against it and essentially like, like get free, borrow money for free. Borrowing money right now is free 
and I get paid in Bitcoin. I use that Bitcoin to lever up and eventually, essentially get free credit to spend. And all of this is interoperable over Lightning. And so I'm building for the year 2050. I think there's going to be a lot of people that want to have that financial experience. And so that's kind of how we optimize around it. I think some of the interesting takeaways for this financial experience is it's inherently global. So this monetary network is interoperable naturally with anyone in the world that's interoperable with it. And so we want to launch in as many countries as we possibly can. I think a big point on Lightning right now is the acquiring side is that there aren't a lot of merchants that are on, um, not enough. And so I think someone needs to become a Shopify partner, wink, wink, right? Like someone needs to integrate the big coffee merchants of the world. Someone needs to get into the big online marketplaces of the world and allow that interoperability. And the last thing I'll say is that that's actually really important is that the, the, the point guys, isn't that strike is taking over. <laughs> uh, like it, the, the point is one network is going to defeat Western Union, Visa, all of these together, one network, but the network has to consist of many participants. And so my goal right now is growing interoperability, like getting, like hopefully Cash App keeps going, right? And getting Amazon interoperable with Lightning and getting Shopify merchants interoperable with Lightning. Because then what you'll you'll see is that yes, you could use Strike, but you could also use Blue Wallet. You could also use a node on Tor. You could also use Cash App. And it's the, the consumer's choice and, the, and, and, and a free market competition on top of an open network. You're gonna see, start to see a renaissance of innovation for the consumer. And that's what we saw with the internet. Like, how do you use the web? Chrome or Safari? There's no right answer. There's the consumer choice, the consumer preference. And if Chrome starts requiring you to do 100 setups before you can open a new tab, you'll just use Safari, right? So they're beholden to you as a consumer, where today Chase is not beholden to me. Western Union is not beholden to me. And in an open network scenario, they are. So it's kind of how we think about things. I gave a few hints without being too transparent or spilling any beans, but um, yeah. Yeah. Love it. Appreciate that. I just want to give a quick reminder. People are requesting to come on stage because we're kind of simulcasting this. We're going to keep questions closed for now, but please uh, feel free to join us on YouTube. We're dropping some stats in the chat as we, as we go through this conversation and I'll pass it to Q from here. Uh, I love everything you've been saying. I mean, in your interview with McCormick, you kind of touch on this a little bit as well, where you bring up how, look, the user experience for the banking system is not conducive to people, but the user experience for Strike and Bitcoin is going to shift that focus. But you're not even focused on like, I don't want all the market share. I actually want competition to come in because competition will breed us and make us all better. Talk a little bit about how you work together with Cash App. They, I mean, Block released the Lightning Development Kit. My assumption is that you spoke with them or had some something given the fact in your experience with lightning talk about the camaraderie that goes on between these companies a little bit please yeah i mean i like to be clear they're so good at everything and i take there's no credit to be dealt my way at all i mean my communication with them is because i'm a peer on the same network and there's a level of communication that exists between us and everyone else, Blockstream, I mean, other Bitcoin companies, right? Like we're just trying to all come to levels of consensus, march this thing forward and continue adoption because it's a superior experience. So that's, I mean, my relationship with everybody. Um, but yeah, so the, the point is really is an important one. Think about this. There's not one internet company. In fact, let's go through that mental model. What if Google was the only internet company? It'd be worth nothing because there's be nothing to search, right? Like, 
it's important to think, I, I know intuitively the thought is, oh, this guy's coming in to be the new Jamie Dimon. He's swindling you. He's wearing hoodies and he's cursing and he says he smokes weed because he wants you to think he's cooler than Jamie Dimon, but he's really in here to be the new Jamie Dimon. No, the fuck I'm not. It, like being on a network implies other network participants. If Google was the only internet company, it would be worth jack shit. Internet companies at, in an, at any network, new network participants are additive. Think about a closed network. New, new Venmo users are additive to the Venmo network. That's more people to pay. That's more people to request. It's the same in an open network. Anyone that joins the network adds value. And so the thesis is that there's not one company that can defeat all of these people at the same time. Listen, if I could walk into Starbucks and check out with Western Union, they would offer that. If Visa could remit money and compete with Western Union on remittance, they would offer that. They can't, right? If radio could also publish newspapers, if telecom could also stream video, they would. There, was, there came one global standard named the internet that dematerialized it all, but it required many network participants to build all sorts of experiences on top of it. And it was the participants on top of one single standard for the world that won. And so the whole point is that's why a lot of my time now is spent doing shit like this, like driving this message home, encouraging people to come on. Because think about it, guys, the value that's going to leak out of the financial sector, there's going to be tens of trillions of dollars up for grabs. And this is what happened with communications. And so people are always like, who is the next Google? Who's the next Facebook of the crypto industry? Fuck the crypto industry. It's who's going to build the best experiences and the best brands on top of the Bitcoin monetary network. And those are going to be the ones that capture the value that leaks out of the existing financial sector today. And so that's kind of how we think about it. And so every, like when Cash App comes on, that's amazing. So if you're saying JP Morgan's going to die, Western Union's going to die, Visa's going to have to sacrifice a lot of market share, and the winners are going to be block and strike, I'm going to be a fucking $5 trillion company, right? Like, what do I have to be mad about? And so my point is there's like so much room for everyone to win. That's part of the whole thesis. And so for people that think I'm my single company is out to defeat Visa and Western Union at the same time, Western Union can't defeat Visa themselves. Visa can't defeat Western Union themselves. And they're both bigger than me. So thinking that I could do it doesn't make any sense. It's illogical. It's, it's, an, it's a collective network. So hopefully that makes sense. It absolutely does. I mean, you say it without saying it, but in essence, you are trying to disrupt the entire global financial and monetary system that's in place. You've sat with the IMF. You have Jamie Dimon trying to do anything under the sun, under his powers and abilities to inhibit you or the development of Bitcoin. I, I'd love to just give you the chance right now, like say it to the camera, say it to Jamie Dimon's face. Like, what would you tell him that he's doing wrong? Or what is he thinking incorrectly about Bitcoin? I wouldn't even like, I wouldn't even say I'm, I, I personally see the world being a better place. If Bitcoin was the monetary network for the world, I think the world would be a better place. I think society would function better. I think human freedoms and a lot of liberties would, would be reinstilled and protected. Uh, and that, there'd be a renaissance of innovation for financial services and experiences. And so that's why I personally believe that, but it's actually not my mission to own. I think it's Bitcoin that is dematerializing the monetary energy and monetary functions as a whole. And I think the way to think about it is the competition is going to live on top of this global layer, like we saw on the internet for the experiences. And so what I would say to Jamie Dimon is let's play ball. Stop being a pussy. Come, come play, 
come compete. Like that is what we want. We want the war. We don't want, like, I can't compete with Chase Bank right now because it would take my whole life to get a federally chartered license. That guy would lobby me in DC till I couldn't breathe anymore. But if we have an open monetary network, we have an open standard to achieve finality and payments, then yeah, if Chase is still the biggest company 100 years from now, that implies that they built a tremendous experience on top of the world's open monetary network. They figured it out. They figured out the compliance, the accounting, the engineering, the user experience for all of that. And kudos to them. But those should be the winners, those that are building experiences that provide true value to the consumer. Because here's the, the, the very subtle but like important change that happens here is that all of a sudden the consumer dictates the market winners, not regulators, not Washington, D.C. And so if you like a financial experience better, you can leave Chase. You don't have to have Chase anymore. And you can exist and be interoperable with the world financially and getting your paycheck, spending money, receiving money, paying your friends. You can do it on your own terms. And then that's when we see innovation is because you cannot lobby Washington, D.C. You better build a feature that someone else built, or you better have better customer support, or you better figure out your accounting structure so you stop failing audits, you know? And so my message to everyone, Western Union included, get interoperable on the network and let's compete, let's play ball. Because whether I win, you win, the world will be a better place for it. And so it's not my mission, it's Bitcoin's mission. And my mission is to be competitive on top of the network. And so that's what I would say. But I would all, I would just say, stop being a fucking coward, man. Like stop going to Washington, DC. Like these politicians aren't gonna help you forever. Like, let's just play ball for the betterment of our species. Let's play, may the best man win. Stop being a little girl about it. You heard it, Jamie. Quit being a little bitch. I do wanna ask you now, you've brought up DC a little bit. Obviously, Jamie Dimon is going to do whatever he wants to do, but there's also a contingent of Bitcoiners who have started to make pushes with different people who are in DC and people who are running to be in DC. We see Cynthia Loomis out of Wyoming making big, big pushes and, and big legislative efforts. What are you interested in seeing DC actually do in regards to Bitcoin? You're good. Okay. Yeah. Um, for, in regards to DC, I think it's my personal opinion. You take it for what it's worth, think it's valuable. Great. If not, whatever. My personal opinion. I think that there needs to be regulatory clarity on this space as a whole. Like when I have conversations with really, really big merchants, really, really big companies, the level of regulatory clarity from bodies like the SEC is not enough. And people are going to freak out like, oh, you're, you're pro-regulation. Why do you need the SEC to tell you what's a security or what's not? Fuck off. Here's what's happening. The Federal Reserve is perverted risk tolerance across all assets. And here's what I mean by that. No one knows the price of anything anymore. Like the rate of it, no one even knows the true rate of inflation right now. And no one can now save in dollars, whether you know that or whether you're on TikTok and you're seeing the guy with the nice car is the one that bought AMC at the right time. It is implied through human behavior, through societal behavior, and just through mathematics that you have to hold other assets if you want to preserve and retain wealth. Okay, how do I make money on that if I'm Andreessen Horowitz? Well, I collect money from LPs and I sell Web3, pink coin, uh, Subway footlong coin as a new savings account. In fact, those sounded crazy, didn't they? Subway footlong coin sounds crazy. What if I told you uh, cartoon drawings of a monkey drooling on itself? Which one sounds crazier? One of those is actually working, right? Okay, so my problem is I've always described altcoins as an arbitrage on the trend. They're arbitraging, that's an informational arbitrage that the Federal Reserve Central Banks has effectively kicked everyone out of saving in dollars. Everyone's effectively homeless. And here you have really 
advanced, sophisticated salesmen selling tents as Malibu mansions on the beach. But as soon as it rains, you're going to be homeless again. And that's what I describe as NFTs, as altcoins, as shit coins. And it's a fucking mess. And so it's an informational arbitrage is that everyone's getting kicked out. Everyone's homeless. Everyone needs a place to live. And people are out here selling tents as mansions, as homes. And so that's information. It's an unprecedented demand to save and no knowledge of how to do it because the tried and true test of time is you open a savings account. That is robbed now from the everyday person. The other arbitrage is a regulatory arbitrage. If I had to sell you a new savings account and it wasn't dollars, it wasn't federally licensed from a federally chartered bank, and it wasn't property like real estate or Bitcoin, then I would have to violate securities law. That is just what's happening. It is a very clear violation of securities law. And so that's why when I say it's an arbitrage on the trend, it's an arbitrage in two ways. It's an informational arbitrage where you're taking advantage of people where my dad had 5% overnight interest when he was my age, put $100 in a savings account, you wake up, you have $105. Now you put $100 in a savings account, they're going to take from you more than it yields. Okay. So everyone is kicked out into the street, homeless. They don't know where to go. And, it, and there are people selling them pictures of monkeys as a place to live. And so that's an informational arbitrage. And the regulatory arbitrage is previously that is violently illegal. But now we have a new asset class that doesn't have the regulatory clarity. And so if the argument is the free market's going to work itself out, I mean, come on, guys, like people are kicked out and homeless because of the monetary expansion from central banks and the high rates of inflation. I mean, it'd be the equivalent of like putting a toddler out on the street. I mean, these people are going to get hit by cars and kill themselves. And if that's your opinion of the free market going to work itself out, it may take 25 years and a lot of people are going to die and it's going to be gruesome and it's going to be bloody and people are going to get away with buying Manhattan penthouses by selling pictures of monkeys. Okay, fine. Or the SEC could do their job and say, that's a security. So I just would like to see a little bit of regulatory clarity because I think these people are getting taken advantage of. And so when it comes to Washington, DC, I, and I think we're getting there and, and, you know, Cynthia Loomis and everyone, I, I'm very grateful for their work that they're putting in pro Bitcoin. Bitcoin is very clearly, it is, it is a big bang type of event is very clearly different than these other assets is very clearly property in my opinion. Um, and I would like to see a little bit more clarity so that if you are an S and P 500 company that wants to get into the space and wants to be interoperable with the lightning network, we know how to account for it. We know how to apply licensing to it. I, we just need a little bit of clarity and a little bit of protection for the retail event investor that's been kicked out of savings accounts and is running around into AMC stock and into pink coin trying to save themselves and getting absolutely murdered jack what is the most vulnerable part of you know the lightning network and bitcoin as it pertains to like clown world mainstream media you know the sec like what are what are the attack vectors there do you see any threat at all or are we just completely orthogonal to those systems uh no i think um we need to i just would be careful like for example, like people, th you know, think it's like a secret. It's not. Strike is a regulated financial institution. We require KYC. And so we are subject to regulatory bodies. Like if regulatory bodies, you know, here, here's my thing is that if we, for example, optimize the lightning protocol to be handshakes between web servers, what happens when someone does lobby Washington, D.C., and now there's a lightning network bit license? 
right? And that if you want to be a centralized lightning network provider, that you need to go through all sorts of bit license and regulatory checks and such like that is something that can exist for centralized services. So I'm always like, we need to build these things to be resilient and to last. People don't appreciate that Bitcoin is also important because of its censorship resistant properties and not only censorship resistant and that they can't change the monetary policy, but you cannot regulate a true distributed network. And so I think it's important inevitably if the blocks and the strikes and the whoever's of the world do pose big threats to Visa and JP Morgan Chase, they will lobby in DC, but it's important that that doesn't kill the whole network, right? Like we aren't the network, the network, we need to build the network in a way where in which you know, some developer in the coast of Australia who builds a wallet in their basement is just as interoperable as Strike. And maybe Strike has to go get some extreme licensing or Strike has to abide by some crazy thing in the United States, but that doesn't have impacts on the protocol itself. And so I'm always often like when it comes to LNURL or the evolution of the bolts, I'm always thinking of it in a way like what's the long-term viability and health of the network? Because I think these QR codes, again, are going to exist for my daughter and 30 years. And I think it's really important that we keep that in mind. We don't optimize for the next few quarters or the next few years. Um, and we ensure that it's, it's resilient. So as long as it's resilient to, uh, to that level of attack, I would feel very confident, but that's nothing that you can actually achieve in finality. That's just an iterative process where as long as the community has consensus that that is one of the many goals, we just always have to keep that in mind as we build shit. So what are some of the hurdles you face in bringing strike to Europe or, you know, Brazil, for example, I mean, places that are just begging for an app just like yours? Yeah, it's just regulatory. I mean, to be clear, it's not legal to in most jurisdictions. Every jurisdiction is different stuff, but usually it's not allowed to custody assets on, on behalf of a consumer to so be a custodial service. And then especially the interfacing with fiat currency is tremendously difficult. And that ranges from regulatory compliance, accounting. And so it's just a, a mix of it all. And then, of course, the user experience and interfacing like ACH is different from IBAN, which is different from FastPay. And there's different internal banking structures depending on the jurisdiction. So um, it's definitely a lot of hard work. But I think what people maybe don't appreciate is I know everyone's very excited and I know everyone's eager. But think about it this way, guys, like in the year 2050 that I keep referencing, you know, are we going to look back and be like, Fox strike didn't launch in Europe in 2021. It launched in 2022. Like, no, I mean, right. Like we're going as fast as we can. Um, and we're building shit that's going to last. That's another thing too. There's no, there's no reason for us to take shortcuts in my opinion. And so I think when it's all said and done in hindsight, it'll all have moved collectively a lot faster than people have assumed, but it's a combination of, all the above, all your intuitions are very likely correct. I want to selfishly ask about uh, my own personal intuition. I, I'm assuming that because of legislative efforts in the US or requirements, I'm sorry, uh, that's why I have to each time deposit cash and then go buy Bitcoin rather than just outright buying Bitcoin. It, does that mean that the legislators want you to essentially call yourself a bank or what is that hurdle here stateside that's preventing that? No, that's just a very particular product thing that will get resolved in the near term. I mean, the strike, uh, we're, we're kicking ass, man. There's a, like, <laughs> the product has gotten so much better because maybe I stopped working on it. <laughs> there, everyone here is really good at engineering a product at UX design, um, our customer support teams um, really kicking ass nowadays. So 
I say all that to say that I think we're a lot bigger than people maybe assume. And there's a ton of shit coming. We're going to resolve of that. You know, the, the interesting insight, just like behind the scenes of the actual story, is the difference between, let's say, a Venmo and a strike is that Venmo controls their monetary network. So they can debit your ACH, attempt to make a payment for whatever reason, like it may fail. Like they can control the P2Pness. But when you are dealing with the Lightning Network is a network that you don't yourself control. So how do you debit money from someone? The Lightning Network payment fails. How do you refund them? And at the time, I was just like, fuck, that sounds complicated. And so I didn't build it. And, and uh, But it's actually actively being built uh, now. And that's just... You know, thanks to uh, the fact that there's an amazing team behind me now, and I'm just a sleazy salesman nowadays. I had to ask the CEO of my favorite Bitcoin buying company uh, how we could fix fix one of the things that I'd like to see change. But talk to us a little bit about the growth of Strike. You guys, you you started this company yourself. You built it up. Uh, it really got on an international stage. I would say off of the heels of the El Salvador stuff. What was the growth leading up to that, and what's the growth been like? out after the El Salvador news? Growth has been off the charts. And, and what I mean by that is like, that's, it, it's a, we're, we're, I'm very pleased with it. I'm very pleased with it. And uh, yeah, I mean, I guess, you know, we've been pretty close to the chest about it because it doesn't really benefit us. We, you know, when you run a business, you want to always optimize success of the business, right? If you are very clear with what you're optimizing for, it becomes very easy to make what is seemingly complicated decisions. If you know what success looks like, you can work yourself backwards from that. And so we haven't really been very public about our growth or our investors or how many employees we have, just because so far it hasn't really, you know, been attractive. It wouldn't, wouldn't add any value to the company, but um, from a high level, I feel very confident, you know, I, the life cycle of a startup, at least from my own experience, is you have an idea to a proof of concept to what I consider to be a hackathon trying to find product market fit. But then there's this evolution of becoming a corporation and, you know, we're optimizing and scaling ourselves into a company where I, I think we can be very competitive with Visa, with JP Morgan Chase, with PayPal. And that's how we're building ourselves. And I think people would be shocked to see how close we really are. Um, not to say we're on par, we have a lot of work to do, but um, we're a lot closer than people think. And maybe over the next few months, uh, I, I think there'll be some stories or some insight into that. Generally happy, super happy. Love that. And I don't want to take away from the exciting announcements. I know you and the team have been working very hard on. Can you talk a little bit and maybe share um, some more about how El Salvador came to be for those who maybe aren't as familiar with the story? I myself will never forget being in the auditorium when you made the announcement. Talk to our viewers a little bit about what that was like. Yeah. Oh, the story itself. I mean, like all the credit goes to Bitcoin beach. That was the whole reason I went down there in the first place. And, uh, there's bits and pieces that are really fun, man. Like I was, you know, the whole story of, I was in a sushi restaurant when I got a DM on Twitter, that's all true. It's actually really funny. I have all the footage. Uh, as soon as I thought that this was going to be real, I called my friend Peter McCormick and, uh, we were just reviewing the footage yesterday, funny enough. And uh, all this thing, all this stuff is documented and it's a lot of fun. But no, the essence of it is, uh, again, I think 20 years from now, uh, my kids aren't going to be like, why the hell 
did El Salvador opt to use Bitcoin as a financial tool instead of the IMF, dad? That doesn't make any sense. They're not going to say that. It's going to sound like the most logical thing ever. They're going to be like, oh, here's a money that's harder than anything that's ever existed, that costs nothing to acquire and participate into this monetary system, and that's free of any adversaries, any intermediaries, any strenuous relationships, especially for an underprivileged, underdeveloped market and government and country like El Salvador. And here's a monetary network that's just a superior payments experience that's open, uh, that's inclusive, that invites free market competition. And so I think it was just like a very natural progression of what it makes intuitive sense. And I don't, I mean, I'm just like very, there's a clip that maybe gets released with 60 Minutes where I'm driving back from one of the meetings I'm just thankful for the role I played is what I said at the time. And I still feel that to the day It's like, it has nothing to do with me as an individual. I don't take any more credit for anything. Um, I just happened to be there. I happened to have launched strike. I happened to have been making tangible progress on what turned out to be a more collective mission. And I, I remember looking at the camera and being like, I promise on behalf of El Salvador, on behalf of this community, on behalf of our species, I'm not going to let us down. I saw that as like a very pivotal moment for humanity almost as like the first stepping stone into what is a more prosperous society um, and, and humanity and universe. And so I felt I did what I was asked to do by the universe. And uh, that was it though, man, that was it. You answered its call and uh, you hit it out of the park, man. I, I will always say thank you because you really pushed it forward in a way that I don't think anyone thought possible until it finally happened. Plus that old saying of it's impossible until it's done. So thank you again for that, man. I want to now, we've talked a lot about this here, decentralization. It's impossible to talk about Bitcoin without it. If anyone who's watching or listening on Twitter has not had a chance, you have to go and watch Peter McCormick's latest episode with Jack titled Jack Orange Pilling the IMF. Go watch that story. We don't need to regress on that, but talk to us a little bit about just how you explain to the IMF the benefits of the decentralized network, maybe just like a bullet point or two on some of the things you brought up in that presentation. Yeah, um, you should go watch it. It's public um, and it's a reference to a true story. Um, but effectively, um, the way I had broke it down to some gentlemen um, in, a, in a different instance was uh, I used tortilla chips, raisins, and peanuts. And what I was able to illustrate is people don't appreciate how many intermediaries and all the required costs that go into conducting a financial transaction today, because effectively we're talking about paper bills and money now has turned into credit. And how does all of this get settled and achieved? And where's the sense of finality come from and who all is involved? Like when Visa charges 2.9% to clear a transaction, they don't collect all 2.9%. They share that with hundreds of other financial intermediaries. And so what I was able to illustrate is I drew in tortilla chips, raisins, and peanuts. I was able to draw what exists today. And you can imagine a line of infinite tortilla chips and all of these sunken costs on top of them. And sunken costs, again, people, it's not intuitive to understand. Western Union has a lot of rent to pay. In order for their business to work, they have to have a brick and mortar shop, many of them in like 200 countries. That's a very expensive fixed cost. Whereas if I can distribute money to someone's cell phone, I don't have any of those costs at all. That implies that my service could be cheaper than theirs, right? And so then you start to kind of knock down. And then what I did is I took this row of tortilla chips and raisins, as you can visualize them. And it was very burdensome, very heavy. It's all these raisins and chips and crumbs all over the place. And then I picked up a peanut. And I said, this peanut 
can actually do the job of all these tortilla chips and raisins. And I may sound crazy to those that are unfamiliar with the story, but in essence, what I'm saying is that Bitcoin can actually accomplish the job that collectively Western Union, Visa, JP Morgan Chase, Citibank, credit unions, the Federal Reserve, that they all do together in unison, which results in uh, you know, a lack of human freedoms financially throughout the world, which results in high fees, which results in slow delays, which results in unfair markets, which results in Washington, D.C. being protective over innovation, which results in, which results in, which results in, which results in. And I was, I was saying this peanut can do it all. And don't think of it as like we have to ditch dollars or ditch like it's not about like being libertarian and telling the Federal Reserve to fuck themselves. It's actually about the peanut can dematerialize all the middlemen. And then the world that we'll end up living in is very similar to the Internet is those that can build the best experience for people to interface with peanuts will win. And if that means interfacing dollars over peanuts, which is Bitcoin for those that don't know, great. And that's a great experience. And someone makes a billion dollars that way. Good for them. If you realize that the market isn't open to that and Strike's idea of that being useful is invalid and dumb, well, then someone will build interfacing with Starbucks points. Someone will build toenails over Bitcoin. Someone will build whatever. But you get this, this really renaissance of innovation, of competing for the experience on top of a premium, premium monetary standard and layer. Um, but my, my message to them is that if we want to optimize for a more inclusive financial society and world, reinstilling basic human freedoms, increasing innovation, lowering costs, increasing accessibility. This is the best tool we got. I give a fuck all if you think the Fed is good or bad. I give a fuck all if you want to own Bitcoin or not. As a tool, you just can't debate that. And that point was received really well. And it was really exciting. And I think it's an interesting way to think about it. And competing for experiences with the tool is going to be, you know, one of the better, you know, times to be alive. You know, the consumer is going to be fucking like it's gonna be like they're showered in gifts there's gonna be all these new services i mean how many lightning apps do you have on your phone right now right and think about when it really picks up to be all these ways um to enhance your life financially because it's on an open uh system that's superior to what exists today so i love that i mean it it really is about this next iteration being oh wait, i'm gonna like real quick okay uh it's really going to be about iterating for the consumer, not prioritizing your profits, not prioritizing your bottom line. I do want to push back on something because this gets brought up and I go back and forth on it myself. The idea that eventually we will lead to a Bitcoin standard where countries, businesses or whatever will essentially have Bitcoin backing, whatever their currency is. Do we not find ourselves though in, in exactly the same place we were post-World War II in a scenario like that? Or does it allow, given Bitcoin's deflationary aspect, give us a little bit more headway and clearance into this future world that you're describing? I'm trying to mute myself on the spaces. I think uh, what, what's interesting, this is more direct comparison, in my opinion, to gold. I think this is the comparison here to be held is, is to gold and Bitcoin superior to gold as a reserve asset because it's like even let's look at what's happening in Canada right now, like the ability to easily privately uh, secure and store Bitcoin as an asset or as property is amazing. Like imagine backing dollars with real estate. Imagine backing dollars with gold. It's very difficult to transport. To it's not as easily as divisible. It's not as easy to store. It's very expensive. It's very gold is incites violence in the way that it's very easy to confiscate. 
by uh, ways of violence and threat. Um, and so I think Bitcoin is superior in that sense. And then I also think that there's a game theory incentive that plays out within nation states that those that optimize for proof of reserves. That, again, like I think if we learn anything from the internet, it's that the best experience and the best brands win. And we're even seeing that in a nation state level with El Salvador, with now tourism's up 30%. They're providing a superior experience and a superior brand to humans and humans are receptive to that. And the consumer choice is seen and heard and the fact that all of their numbers are now up. And so I think in the same way that PayPal and Block are gonna compete over the experience and the brand on top of the world's open monetary network, so will nation states in that, in that sense. And I think the reason that that's viable and it's different is because Bitcoin is a superior reserve asset to gold. Um, and so that's why I think it's different. And that's how I like to think about it is it's this open system and uh, the experience in the brand will end up uh, triumphing and, and winning and people should optimize for that. It makes sense. I don't, I don't hate what you're saying. I fear that the hard drive wallets will be more easily confiscatable than gold just because they're, people are just going to hold them. I look forward to being so absolutely wrong about that and you running laps and circles around me laughing about this concern and fear in the future. I do want to ask you, you brought up the issues going on up north in Canada, and we're seeing in real time the importance of a decentralized network. We're seeing the importance of not having control over shutting down access points. There are still on and off ramps that are viewed by the government up north in Canada. Talk to us about the differences and how naive, maybe a little naive, and forgive me for the question, but for example, is Strike under the U.S. jurisdiction, are they an on and off ramp for Bitcoin that is viewed or that the government can turn around and say, like, let me let us know who, who your users are and talk to us a little bit about the importance of knowing and not knowing? Yeah, I mean, listen, like Strike is a regulated financial service, right? So like we are just like, so is Cash App, so is Coinbase, so is Kraken. Um, the importance, though, is that we're interoperable with this network. And so maybe people have used Strike to, you know, donate. Maybe they haven't. I have no idea. And um, I think the important takeaway, though, as it relates to Bitcoin in Canada, is exactly that, is that you now have an asset and a monetary network that could be used in a uh, censorship resistant, decentralized. Also, it's important that people take advantage of the privacy aspects and and uh characteristics and properties that come with the system um, and that you have you have a monetary system and a monetary experience that is sufficient and that lives external of any central body or any central party and that that's the takeaway and it may sound mundane and it may sound repetitive but that's the truth and so yeah i, I mean i think this is a I, I i look at what's happening in canada as potentially as material as something like what we saw with UASF and Segwit2x is hope. My hope is that we can look back at this as a tried and true chapter that proves that Bitcoin was resilient in the face of what is being considered like, you know, a government acting, whatever. I don't, I'm, I, I'm reluctant to give like outlandish political views and stances. That's not my job, but um, I think Bitcoin has an opportunity to really prove itself. And uh, I think it already is, and we'll improve on it. It seems like people could be using it more privately and it'll iterate and improve. But uh, I think that this is pretty fucking cool is like in the, in the same way that strike on top of lightning can be better than Western union and visa Bitcoin right now is better than any other tool at providing Canadians, the financial services that they're being deprived of. And so there's no other tool in the world. And, and that that's where you see true value, um, not white papers and shit. So 
Are there any specific improvements or BIPs uh, that you're looking at that you advocate for uh, or upgrades to Lightning as well? Um, in, re in regards to like privacy and shit or just generally the privacy stuff? Yeah, either. Yeah, both. Uh, I mean, like obviously for Strike, for myself, for privacy, like I'm big on Bull 12 and a lot of the stuff happening in Lightning. I'm big on... Uh, what Steve Lee has brought up recently and the potential of using BIP21 as some universal standard. Potentially, I actually don't know where I land on that. I'm big on, uh, so yeah, Bolt 12 for me is one of the bigger ones or just optimizing Lightning. I think Lightning is here to stay. It's pretty clear. And um, just the ongoing work in optimizing the protocol to be successful, but also retain the properties that make it important and, and uh, allow it to survive. So that's where a lot of my focus is when it comes to like protocol specs and stuff like that is uh, trying to ensure that we make a resilient, private, open monetary network and enable good experiences on top of it. Yeah, that makes sense to me, man. That That's where your head's at. Um, Q, do you have uh, maybe final thoughts, last questions here before we take too much of Jack's time? I, I'm so mad at Twitter per usual, but uh, <laughs> I do I do want to ask a, a couple things real quick, Jack, to put you on the spot a little bit. If you could genuinely change one thing about the Bitcoin network, what would you change? Oh, dude. Um, I don't think anything, but it's because uh, it's because that's the whole point. Like I like I I guess the thesis of the question is if you could go back in time maybe or something. But I think the point of Bitcoin is that it can't change. I actually, this is going to be a fucking wild thing to say, but hear, hear me out on this thought. This is a thought that I've had recently that I've used to explain Bitcoin to family and friends. I think of Bitcoin, I, I like the, the phrase that I tweeted not too long ago is that Bitcoin can change the world because the world cannot change Bitcoin. And that's a very powerful concept that has nothing to do with the price, that has nothing to do with the fact that it's superior payments. This is grounded in the idea that Bitcoin is a definitive, it's a variable that has been defined. This is a mathematic concept where you cannot solve 2 plus X equals Y. That math problem is unsolvable. But if you define Y as 4, we can spend time resolving of X. And the way I like to think about it is you know the phrase, are you familiar with the only promise with life is death? Are you familiar with this concept? Mm -hmm. That's mm -hmm. it. Right. What does that actually mean? I think death is really important because it actually gives value to our lives. Time within itself is an infinite asset. Um, there is no supply cap on time and time alone is not valuable. And if our lives had unlimited time, it's unclear whether how valuable our lives would be. I wouldn't have to go to gym, the gym today. I wouldn't have to get married. I wouldn't have to reproduce. It's actually the guarantee and promise of death that values our lives. And I, the way I like to think about Bitcoin is Bitcoin is one giant big bang of a promise. It's the first monetary promise that's ever existed in the universe. And so in the same way that death allows us to value our lives, I think you know, Bitcoin allows us to value the monetary energy in the universe. It's the first defined money has forever been two plus X equals Y, right? It's impossible to value the monetary energy that exists in the universe because there's never been this concept of death. There's never been a finite resource that encompasses the monetary energy that encompasses the time that we spend alive. 
Does that make sense? And so I wouldn't change anything because it is this big bang-esque event. And I'd go as far to say that now there are two promises that you are born with into this universe, the promise of death and the promise of Bitcoin. And think about like the way society is able to optimize around these promises and the way that you're able to optimize around unsolved variables in a math equation. As long as you know, you know, as long as the end goal end is defined, right? And so as long as we know there's only going to be 21 million Bitcoin, we can rebuild societies, time preferences, human relationships. We can build structures wholly predicated on the guarantee that the world cannot change Bitcoin. This is an architectural foundation that we can build upon. And I think if you think about how we've optimized our, our lives around the promise of death, it's very apparent. And so how are we going to optimize our, our species around the promise of Bitcoin? So I like to think of it that way. And I have no desire to change Bitcoin because I think that in essence is in it's bigger than price. It's bigger than payments. It's like a foundational architectural block that our species can build upon within the universe. And if death values our lives, I think Bitcoin values the monetary energy that exists. I, uh, I heartily agree with you there. I think I mean, Bitcoin's often talked about as like some kind of like financial measure or finally we have, you know, an unwavering measure, but it's not just that. I mean, it's the only objective set of facts that we have as a species that we can all look at and agree upon that's transparent and immutable for the most part. So like in my eyes, this is the only path forward for humanity. It's uh, it's the only thing that's going to get us through, you know, the great filter. It's the only thing that's going to allow us to fund important scientific achievements such as, you know, spreading out as a species interplanetarily and, you know, so on. So I'm really excited you brought that up. Yeah, I just think it's an interesting way to think about Bitcoin is that, yes, it's a hard money and it should appreciate against everything because it's harder than everything. And we're, we're seeing that play out. And yes, it's a superior payments experience. And so, you know, people should opt to use it and it should de dematerialize a lot of the financial experiences, but more so than both of those, it's the first truly definitive monetary variable that's ever existed in the universe. And you can leverage that to build societal structures and human relationships and really truly value and encompass monetary energy that exists in a way that is impossible before. So I think more than anything, it's just very bullish our species and our ability to build monetary tooling on top of something that we can rely on. It's the, yes, yeah, the only monetary property asset network that we can solely rely on and we know won't change. That's ever existed by the way. Um, and so I don't like, it's crazy to me that people like aren't interested in it doesn't make any sense yeah i think they just need their their three four touch points you know sometimes it takes it takes a little more <laughs> we'll just subsume them from a decentralized stance and everyone everyone won't even know they're using bitcoin eventually i mean the first children who are raised on a bitcoin standard are already they're already being raised it's beautiful yeah, yeah i mean it'll work itself out and uh i always thought it was interesting the way Satoshi designed the monetary policy is it, it, it there's always been a very blatant incentive to the, reward earlier participants, right? Like the way I've always described havings to uh, my friends is if it's just you and I hanging out and I say, I've got a pizza sitting in the living room, eh, you'll go get it when you're hungry. But if, they're, if we're in a concert full of 100,000 people and there's one pizza in the living room, whether you're hungry or not, you're going to get it because you know there's not going to be any left whether you're hungry or not, and you, and you may want to get some just in case. 
And that's how Satoshi even like verbally put in the old forums. And so there's always been this very violent, blatant game theory type incentive to reward early participants and that you might want to get a slice of pizza in the off chance that you're hungry, which sounds crazy. Of course, I'm going to be hungry. So, but, right. And I think in hindsight, it will sound just as crazy. Like, of course, I want a little bit of the hardest asset that's ever been conceived in human history. Like, duh. But, you know, for whatever reason, that's not as apparent. And those that do understand it before others are properly rewarded. I think that makes a ton of sense. Satoshi, you know, him, her, them, whatever, you know, infinite hats off. <laughs> I've seen and heard you talk enough to know that you're probably not going to answer this, but uh, I, I, I'd be foolish to not ask while I have you on air. Do you mind giving us a prize prediction for the end of 2022? Yeah, I'll give it. I mean, I'm not going to, I'm not going to no answer you guys. <laughs> uh, I don't know how important it is. Here's the way I like to think about it. And I said this on the McCormick podcast, Bitcoin's just the harder money and hard is in reference to how hard it is to create more of it. And so how hard is it to create more dollars? Seemingly not very difficult. How hard is it to create more penthouses in New York city? Harder than dollars, but not impossible. How hard is it to create more Bitcoin? The only asset that's ever existed where it is impossible. So in theory, it should appreciate against everything given time. Now, now the speculation is, you know, in accordance to particular events like COVID or market perception and the Fed easing and tightening rates and so on and so forth. And I don't think speculating on that is very interesting. You're just timing the inevitable that this thing will appreciate given the monetary properties that it has. So 2022, I think we comfortably touch six figures. I think we exceed $100,000 this calendar year. Where we end it, which what would mean on December 31st? I have no fucking idea. Uh, say 100,000, I don't know. I just think my whole thing is like money that you don't intend to spend and that you are going to save, just put it in Bitcoin. It will, the way to think about it is if you hold it in dollars, your dream house right now that's a million bucks, Next year will be 5 million bucks. Next year will be 10 million bucks. And if you hold it in Bitcoin, it may be 200 Bitcoin. Next year, it's 150 Bitcoin. Next year, it's 100 Bitcoin. Next year, it's 50 Bitcoin. So life gets cheaper if you hold in the harder asset. Life gets more expensive if you hold in the weaker asset. And then of the money that you need to spend, I think it'll be increasingly achievable and attainable and a better experience when you, it's spent over lightning. It's cheaper, it's faster, it's better, it's more global. Um, and so that's the way I like to think about it. And, you know, I don't know. Price it is what it is. I look forward to the day where we're not worried about the price back in uh, USD. Yeah. I mean, I arguably am not worried about it right now. I mean, it is what it is. And unless like you're looking to buy a house next month. Yeah. Maybe you hope Bitcoin hits a little spike, but I don't know, 27, I'll want to buy a house sometime in the future. So yeah. In order to support that desire, I stack sats. Fuck, you know, like, <laughs> <laughs> Talk to us a little bit, because one thing that we, we touched on a little bit, the work Block is doing, and one thing that I'm really excited about, albeit it is still just in the white paper phase, is their decentralized exchange, that they say you're going to be able to buy anything from crypto to fiat and everything else in between, including real estate. How does something like real estate transactions look on a decentralized platform like Bitcoin? How do you envision that being built out without giving away the secrets that you're working on? No, no, no. I mean, it's nothing to do with me. I, I admittedly 
Jack Dorsey is just like a huge, I mean, I've looked up to him ever since I was a kid. He was like my uh, Forbes, like mentor, uh, like my dream mentor or whatever. So anything that that guy is working on, you know, my net intuition is like, he's figuring it out. And if I can't figure out, he's probably got it figured out and it'll take me time to catch up to his brain. But uh, from my understanding, it's not decentralized in the way in which where it's backed by proof of work. It's more decentralized in like a torrent sense where you can run a client that interfaces with this network of participants that is relaying data that is able to provide a payments experience or an onboarding experience to their users. Um, And so I don't think it actually should be compared to like what people maybe now know as like a DEX or something like that. There is no mining or there, I don't, I don't think you're fetching from a blockchain to remain in consensus and validate anything. I think it's more like a torrent, like in the same way that a lot of the early music networks that were decentralized, right? Like you're just passing music or, or data between each other. So that's to my knowledge, um, but I admittedly don't know enough about it to give a credible opinion. So you can really ignore whatever I'm saying, but uh, that, is, that is my thoughts. <laughs> I, I appreciate the candid answer. I mean, it's interesting to watch this entire industry develop before our eyes. It's Bitcoin is still only a teenager and it's not even old enough to drive a car. I'd love to give you the opportunity. I know we've been sort of stealing a lot of your time and I don't want to take too much of it. Do you mind sharing maybe something that you're excited about that's coming up beyond uh, the 60 minutes interview and beyond just sort of what work you're doing at Strike? Is there anything else beyond that that you're excited about? I'm just excited for more people to come onto the Lightning Network. Um, I really can feel a tipping point of sorts where I think it's going to be really, really, really interesting if someone on Shopify or a store can accept any payment from any interoperable service and have instant dollars. And, you know, if they want some of those dollars to be Bitcoin or whatever, whatever source, but there's no fees to accept that there's no regional restrictions. Like it has to be within the United States. I think you're going to start to see a superior payments experience exist. Or if I walk into a Dunkin' Donuts and I can check out with Visa or I could check out with this tap to pay lightning or, or a QR code and I get more rewards, I get half off, I get whatever. I think everyone gains from an open monetary network because there's more value capture for the participants that are actually delivering the value. Think about this. When I walk into a fucking Dunkin' Donuts, bro, I buy the coffee. The one, I have the value to pay for it. And Dunkin' Donuts is the ones providing me the value. But close to 3% of that is given to like all these other people for what the fuck? Like they're not, what service are they providing? They're providing like finality of the transaction. But what I'm saying is Bitcoin and lightning does all of that. Right. And so then the value, the way I, if you like close your eyes and try and visualize it, the value that exists in like all those institutions collecting the 3% for me to get a fucking coffee where the true value exists between myself and Dunkin' Donuts, that 3% worth of value, which is Visa issuing banks, acquiring banks, right. Will go towards those that are actually delivering the true value, which are those making really dank coffee and those that have the money that want to buy it. And so I think that 
the Dunkin' Donuts of the world are really incentivized for people to use Lightning. You're going to start to see a flywheel like, hey, check out over Lightning. We'll give you half off. We'll give you more rewards. We'll give you more points because the, the less intermediaries, the more value is up for grabs, the more value is going to leak into those that truly own it. It's better for Dunkin' Donuts. It's better for those that are building dope wallets. And the only people that are going to get pissed off by it are the Jamie Diamonds because now you have to compete for the value. You aren't just granted it because you have a banking license that you pay lobbyists to protect. You know, So I'm very keen this year. My mission is to be able to walk into a, a coffee shop and go on Shopify and, you know, shop my groceries and be able to use lightning, whether I use dollars on it, Bitcoin on it, it's my choice. And that's what I'm most excited about. I love that. I mean, to be honest, I need to go to my farmer's market next weekend and tell everyone to set this up. Someone tried to charge me 75 cents to buy a pupusa just to use a credit card, which was a 15% surcharge on the actual charge like it's it's crazy and you're yeah. absolutely right what's insane though is like let's say so here's my thing too is people are like fuck you man uh strike uses dollars strikes regularly whatever my point is like guys listen like starbucks is not gonna like use like an unregulated like violated right but my thing is like i'm gonna go through the hoops and hurdles and the lobbying and the compliance and all that shit to get someone like dunkin donuts interoperable but then you can use whatever the fuck you want and that's a hugely powerful day for humanity is i can walk into dunkin donuts and i can use a lightning node that's in my basement running over tour that i'm connected to via some like wallet ui interface and buy coffee privately on my own terms i could use bitcoin i could use dollars over lightning i could use whatever i want it's the consumer's choice right now when i walk into dunkin donuts what consumer choice do i have visa mastercard i have no consumer choice so the whole point is getting people interoperable once we're all interoperable then the choice lives with the consumer. And so I think, yeah, if your farmer's market, all these people, they just have to be interoperable. It's not like get them to like download strike. No, download whatever. And like, but like, I think more like in the payment space, you call them acquirers, which are traditionally just merchants, but we need more acquirers interoperable um, to really like see this thing start to have a flywheel effect um, of value driven to the acquirer, then kicked back to the issuer, acquired. And then you start to, then I think the Jamie Diamonds in the world would really start to panic. And who knows, like maybe Block turns it on in their point of sale and like we really go from there. We'll see. Guys, you heard it here first. Jack Mahler's is a Dunkin' guy, not a Starbucks guy. So let's make sure that <laughs> Dunkin' goes ahead and starts accepting lightning payments. There you go. There you go. <laughs> talk, talk a little bit though about, like I, I learned this literally while trying to set up the, the tips function today that you're actually not sending sats, you're actually sending fiat over the lightning network. And obviously this is due in part to taxes and whatnot. Talk a little bit about the, how that works and what the benefit of that is versus the benefit of sending Bitcoin via the lightning network. Yeah, well, the, the thinking is, it's just a really awesome experience is that like inevitably, like listen, and my whole thing is if you are on the sat standard, you don't own any fiat, great, that's great for you. Inevitably, there is like a chunk of the world where Bitcoin, if Bitcoin is going to become 
one of the more dominant assets, reserve assets in the world. It has to, it implies volatility on its journey there. And there are people that like taking half their paycheck, 25% of their paycheck, 75% of their paycheck in Bitcoin, but then the rest is in fiat. And what I'm saying is fiat interfaced over lightning is a better experience than fiat interfaced over the Visa network. <laughs> you know what I mean? And so the whole point is I, I can hold $100 and I can send those 100 US dollars anywhere in the world. I could send it to any merchant. I could send it to anyone else interoperable. And it's actually very complicated engineering, compliance, legal accounting to pull this off that we do at Strike. But the whole point is that right now, how many people hold a fiat balance that they look to spend? Everyone in the United States. And I'm saying if we make it interoperable over Lightning, then we crush the value that Visa and JP Morgan Chase and all these people hold, and we redistribute it to those that provide an experience on top of one network, which is Lightning. So it's effectively, I mean, my, my thing is you don't have to like own, you don't have to be on the Bitcoin standard and have to sell your Bitcoin and use sats to, to benefit from lightning. I think lightning is, is better than Visa, better than Western union. And so I take the experience that people have today, which is just holding fiat dollars. And I just plugged lightning into it as, as opposed to like the Visa network. I don't know if that made sense, but that's, I mean, it's like part of this core thesis of, uh, yeah, if the tort, if, if life is about, or if the winners are going to be the best experience on top of lightning, maybe one of those experiences that's interesting to a lot of people is taking US dollars and making them spendable over the lightning network. Maybe there's some like super cypherpunk wallet that people use as well. The way I like to talk about it is there's Chrome and there's Tor. Which browser is better? There is no better. Some people like Tor, some people like Chrome. Like how do I check out over the lightning network at Dunkin' Donuts? Some people are going to like to spend their US dollars over the lightning network. Some people are going to like to use like the Tor non-custodial like wallet that's on your phone oh, whatever right so it's just like one of those preferences pre like it's just a particular experience that i think is going to be valuable to a lot of people i love the optionality and just giving you know the people the, the choice to choose it's kind of i feel like right now we might be at a point where um there's kind of like an information overload about especially like all these new retail investors coming into bitcoin like receiving bitcoin receiving lightning like what's the difference like i don't even understand but i think uh you know, as UX and like Strike has done a lot to like make this experience way better for users, I think that kind of optionality comes, you know, after your initial hazing and after you spend some time yeah. in Bitcoin. So it's, it's it a this. natural process. Yeah, I'll be like super practical about it. So I have an HOA on this place that I got to pay every month. I got uh, to buy groceries. I got, I don't have a car, so I'm an Uber guy. So I got to use Uber. Like, uh, I got a girlfriend that I love that I take on dates and shit. So there's like an entertainment value experience that I have, right? Like, so there I have these costs and I don't like, here's my preferred prep personal. I get a large portion of my paycheck in Bitcoin because that money I don't intend to spend. And then when I think about the money that I have to spend that I get in dollars, this is paying the restaurants when I go on dates. This is paying Uber. This is paying my HOA. This is paying Whole Foods for the groceries. I'm saying Lightning is a better payment network than what I use today, which is the combination of Chase and Visa and the credit unions and shit. And so I'm saying, why can't I get Whole Foods, my building, all the restaurants in Chicago interoperable with Lightning, whether they use BTC, BTC Pay Server, Block, the Strike API, whatever, and then I can zip these dollars over the Lightning Network 
everyone wins. And then, right, like, or if I need to remit money to El Salvador, or if I, right, like, it's just a superior payments network. And I can use some of the sats that I was planning to save if I really want to. But Bitcoin that I own, bro, doesn't ever, like, get spent. Like, that's the way I live my life. And, like, I'm just, that's just my personal preference. Like, I know how much I get paid every single month. And I know how much of that goes to living the lifestyle that I enjoy. And I know how much of that I want to save and persist over time. And so the saving and persisting over time, I get paid in Bitcoin, I withdraw, it goes to cold storage. And then for uh, the money that I need to spend, I think it should be spendable over the Lightning Network. And there's no taxes involved in that. There's no capital gains. There's no volatility I deal with. I got, let's say, blanketed. I got $1,000 to spend this month. There's going to be a better payments experience if it's spendable over the Lightning Network if the Dunkin' Donuts that I do go get a cold brew at is lightning with rewards and it's cheaper and they're capturing more value and visa doesn't exist in that user flow. So that's like a very practical example of we can take the lifestyle I have today and we just use the lightning network to get rid of the fact that I could solely live on strike and lightning, no visa, no chase, no, none of that shit, remitting money, none of that shit, buying coffee, none of that shit, paying my friends, none of that shit. Maybe my friends are on cash app, but because of lightning, we can P to P each other between two independent services, you know? So I'm just trying to like interoperability everywhere and replace, lightning should replace my relationship I have today with Visa. I have a relationship with Western Union. I have a relationship with Chase. I have a relationship with ACH. Lightning can replace all that shit. But it doesn't mean I need to like stop using dollars is my point. Like we can interface dollars on top of it. For sure. I think, uh, you know, to wrap up here today, I, I want to remind everyone that uh jack will be at the bitcoin 2022 conference i'm sure you'll have some exciting announcements and exciting you know talk to give you can get 10 percent off your tickets with promo code ytmag and i guess the 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 final final question jack what are you looking forward to about the the bitcoin 2022 conference just being there man one of the things i appreciate most about bitcoin that wasn't an intent coming into it i think everyone comes in whether they want to own an asset that's going to appreciate in its purchasing power or offer them superior payments or censorship resistance. All those qualities are really important. But I think what I underestimated and what I've grown to appreciate is just the people. I have this thesis about being a human in that naturally, no matter who you are, just being alive, you inherently want two things. You want to be a part of something bigger than yourself. And that's just not living life alone. (laughs) That's the creating a family, uh, being part of an intramural team, joining a company, having friends, is that living life with human connection and building relationships. And then the others working on something that will last longer than you will. And that's leaving a legacy. And that's understanding that the goal isn't to live forever. It's to hopefully build something that does and contributes to our species and to the longevity of the universe. And I think inherently everyone wants some form or facet of those two things. And Bitcoin perfectly encompasses that. And one of which is working on something that will last longer than I will. I think Bitcoin's going to last a lot longer than I will. And so that's great. But the other is not spending your life alone and finding like-minded people that are, are working on something as intimate and as ambitious and as personal and as valuable as Bitcoin is a really special thing. And you build a lot of awesome relationships. Um, and so I'm just excited to give hugs and say hi and, uh, you know, share the vibrant energy that this conference always has with everybody. So just happy to be present.
Awesome, Jack. Thank you so much for your time, man. We're looking forward to seeing and hearing from you down there. We're all looking forward to this 60 minutes segment. That's not this week. It's the following week, right? I don't know. My flight, look at my calendar. My flight's this afternoon. I don't know when it comes out. Yeah, I'm going to chop it up. Talk about El Salvador. So I'm excited. Be on the lookout for that. Shout out to Bitcoin Beach. <laughs> I don't know when it comes out, though. We will... Uh... We will make sure we broadcast that on all of our channels here at Bitcoin Magazine. Don't don't you worry about that, Jack. In the meantime, though, everyone, if you don't already follow this man on Twitter, I don't know what you're doing with your life. Go make sure you follow him. Uh, the only 250,000 follower account that's not verified. Honestly, you should just keep that train going, baby. Yeah. Once a pleb, always a pleb, man. Fuck that shit. <laughs> Love it, man. Jack, thank you so much for your time. Thank you again. Stay tuned. Peace out. Thank you, guys. Yep. 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 Yep.